Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 9th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and new Disney surveys. And in our main segment, Jim begins the history of Disney's haunted mansions. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that all pleasures are guilty pleasures if you have enough anxiety. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. You are familiar, of course, with the the term pleasure craft, as in large boat that you fill with friends and go down river or out on a lake or that sort of thing. Are you familiar with guilty pleasure craft? (laughs) No. Well, that's when you steal somebody else's boat and then take (laughs) friends and family out on the water. (laughs) Spoken uh, with the voice of experience, Jim. Yeah, really shouldn't have left those keys out. I'm just just saying. saying. Just saying. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Brandon Smith, Colleen Cecilia, Jim Marr, and the RT Steph S. And longtime subscribers, Paul Novak, Brenda Rothstein, and Jelly Shelley. Jim, these are the folks who came up with the three gifts inside the Temple of Mara at Disneyland's Indiana Jones Adventure, Temple of the Forbidden Eye. And those three gifts are, of course, as you know, eternal youth, unlimited riches, and seeing the future. But did you know, Jim? That the fourth gift, now mysteriously missing, is the never-ending fountain of chocolate. True story. I could explain that. <laughs> the an, the an ending nev- thing of chocolate, very bad ant problem with the Temple of Verbridna. <laughs> so, so the humidity gets to it. You know, again, Jungle Cruise right next door. The hippos started getting diabetes. Unfortunate tale. We'll, we'll, we'll just leave it there. And its location will forever remain a mystery. There you go. All right, Jim, we've got a lot of news today. Let's uh, let's go over it. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, quick uh, reopening. The Hall of Presidents reopened last week. President Joe Biden giving the oath of office. I believe he's also got uh, in a little uh, stand next to him his uh, trademark aviator sunglasses. I just feel bad that... We now are in this space that in the end, what they decided would be the safest thing to go with and the most, uh, go the least controversial was having you know, the current president do the oath of office. Oath of office, yeah. The thing that you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. I realized there was so much talk the last time about Trump's likeness, but Biden isn't all that great either. I don't know these days if somebody needs to talk with who's ever building the sleeve you know, that they put over the, the main figure. But Biden doesn't have eight foot wide shoulders. <laughs> the people who are doing this need to uh, uh, en- enroll in the, uh, the Disney vision care plan. There we go. Jim, uh, other openings coming up. It looks like DVC and AP previews for Remy's Ratatouille Adventure begin September 4th. And there's at least a dozen dates for that in September. So that should alleviate a lot of the potential crowd ahead of its October 1st opening. Jim, as I recall, didn't Disney say sort of like off the record that the reason why they were going to open Remy on October 1 is to pull people from the Magic Kingdom? Well. <laughs> and then, Jim, doesn't opening it early for a DVC and annual pass holders mean that those people are now free to go to the Magic Kingdom on October 1st? I picture the planning department. Can remember those? Those if you got the infinite number of monkeys in the typewriters. <laughs> I think they've got another gig, Len. I think this plan is ten monkeys, twenty minutes. There you go. Okay. All right. Speaking of annual pass holders, Jim, uh, Disneyland annual pass prices came out. Did you see this? I did. Did they come to the house to use the famous Testa Disney naming wheel? Because every name that they picked for the various levels here is on the wheel, right? Right. So the the new tickets have a Disney-esque name. Like, mm-hmm. uh, they're called Keys now. Magic Keys is the name of the program. The lowest, uh, least expensive one is called the Imagine Key. And it goes up from there. The two that, uh, other two that I want to talk about besides the Imagine Key is the Believe Key and the Dream Key. But let's start with the Imagine Key. So, Jim, this is uh, Southern California residents only. Mm-hmm. It's uh, $399. It replaces, I believe, the Southern California Select Pass, which was four hundred and nineteen dollars, mm-hmm. and the old SoCal Select Pass had many blackout dates, right? Dates that you couldn't get into the parks. So weekends, for example, also Fridays in like March, April, May, September, October, December, mm-hmm. all of June, all of July, all of August, most of December, right? So it's basically if you wanted to come during weekdays in the off season, this was your pass. You also got a ten uh, percent dining discount, ten percent merch discount, and it didn't include parking. 
And the Imagine Key Pass, the new one, it's $20 cheaper. It's very, very similar. It's the same uh, dining discount, same merch discount, mm-hmm. doesn't include parking, has all the same blackout dates as before, but it has two other additional sets of blackout dates, as far as I can tell. One is Columbus Day week in October mm-hmm. is now blacked out. And also the entire first full week of January looks like it, it's blacked out. Now, Columbus Day week, I understand, because that was sort of like, of all the dates that were left for blackouts, under the old SoCal Select Pass. I think Columbus Day was the most popular of them. So it makes sense that that one is also blocked out. If we're talking about why the the first full week of January got picked for this, this is strictly a Southern California market thing. Mm -hmm. But you know the Tournament of Roses, right? The parade, you know. Oh, and that brings in people. That's it, exactly. You know, friends and family will come to town and they'll stay for the parade. And then it's like, what else can we do? We're all in town and hey, let's head to Disneyland. Yeah, I mean, Pasadena to Anaheim is not that far. There you go. All right, so the next pass that I want to talk about is replacing the Disney Signature Pass, which was $1,200. It had uh, blackout dates that included Christmas and New Year, 15% dining discount, 20% merch discount, a 15% off discount on tours. It included parking, and of course, you didn't need any park reservations. Mm -hmm. Um, The Believe Key now, uh, which is $949, so $250 less. Uh, so you'd think that's a that's a pretty decent bargain. However, you have many more blackout dates. So the Signature Pass had 11 blackout dates. The Believe Key has 46 blackout dates. I think every Saturday in October, the week of Thanksgiving, Saturdays in December, Christmas and New Year, which was the same as the old pass, President's Day weekend, all the Saturdays in spring break, March, Easter, Memorial Day weekend, and Saturdays in July, Jim. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, 10% dining discount, so that's uh, less of a discount than before. 10% merch desk discount, also less than before. But Jim, the uh, the thing I want to point out here is it's no longer free parking. It's 50% off parking and only on certain days. So yeah. parking at Disneyland right now is $25. So mm-hmm. 20 days of visit, 20 days of visiting mm-hmm. costs the same as the previous pass. So many more blackout dates. If you visit 20 times, which is what? Less than, less than twice a month, mm-hmm. you're already paying more. So much of the new Magic Key system is gamed to make operations of the park that much easier. Yeah. Yes, it still allows the folks who are willing to pay for the Imagine, uh, excuse me, right. the Dream Key. It frees up space for the customer who's willing to pay top dollar to get in there. I think that's the thing that the sort of the press is missing in this. Mm. The Disneyland annual pass holders get it, right? The people mm-hmm. who are familiar with Disney. But I think the broader media mm-hmm. coverage of this is missing this. Yeah, you know, you get six reservations. But mm-hmm. Disney hasn't said how they're going to allocate reservations among annual pass holders, day guests, and people with resort reservations staying on site. Mm-hmm. Right, So if they juggle those pools so that it's much more difficult to, for an annual pass holder to get a reservation, they could say, you know, fine, make, you can have 20 reservations in advance. But if mm-hmm. the pool of reservations is small enough, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, and mean, that's the thing I think that's, that's, that's missing here. Also, how many of the Dream Keys are going to be available? Right. There's not an unlimited supply. Right. So, so the Dream Key you mentioned is the next highest level after Believe Key. It's $1,400, $50 cheaper than the Signature Plus Pass, which it replaced. These things are the same as the Signature Plus. There are no block dates. 15% dining discount, same as before. 20% merch discount, 50% on tours. Does include free parking. Gets you six reservations in advance, but no Max Pass, which is going yeah. away. Yeah. And no photo pass, which I mean, I enjoy looking at the passes in photo pass. I've never like downloaded one and sent it as a gift or mm-hmm. given it to anyone. It's basically like, oh, here's someone who took a picture I can post on Twitter for me. What's been interesting with, with stuff like photo passes, there's the, oh, people will use this in theory. And then you put it out in the real world and it's yeah. just sort of, it's nice, but it's not yeah. essential. And it's true. Also, there's no more Premier Pass, the one that uh, included Walt Disney World and Disneyland. That was $2,200 before it went away. Mm, August 25th is when all of these things go on sale. Yep. To see how much, how many people are going to pick them up mm-hmm. and then how they use them is going to be super interesting. I agree. Absolutely. Speaking of changes, this week, Disneyland Paris implemented its paid FastPass system. And some of those prices are out. 
Thanks to our friends over at wdwmagic.com who have captured the current prices for these passes. And by the way, keep in mind, these are all dynamic prices, mm -hmm. so they may change. But uh, the, uh, to go on uh, the Autopia, so the Tomorrowland Speedway, to get a fast pass for that is $10, $9.50. Big Thunder Mountain, currently $14. Buzz Lightyear, $18. Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, $14. Space Mountain, $11. Star Tours, $9.50. Peter Pan's Flight, $18. And Tower of Terror, $18. $18 to For go Peter Pan's Flight? Buzz Lightyear. Does that guarantee me a, a high score? I mean, you know, just sort of... <laughs> exactly. You get two lasers. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what happens here? Yeah, <sighs> that's that's interesting. It's going to be important to watch how these prices fluctuate mm -hmm. over time and how uh, what the response is for that. Fortunately, we're doing that, so that's good. Okay. But Jim, this brings up another point here. So I think we've long said that, you know, paid fast pass is coming to Walt Disney World. Let's Let's just go over here what we think Disney's going to announce. And my sense is some of this will be done this month, right? The first thing is, uh, so this is how the, I imagine like the rides are going to work in Walt Disney World sometime after October 1st. So many rides will have a traditional standby queue. So you're familiar with just walking up to a ride and waiting in line. Standby queues will still exist on most rides. There'll also be standby pass, which is virtual queues with time windows, right? So imagine the old fast pass system where you were able to get a pass. It said, come back at this time uh, and you can get in line. But here, the standby pass will be just a pass to get in the standby line, not a pass to bypass the standby line. And we've seen this before, like in, uh, during the uh, early days of the pandemic, when at Hollywood Studios, for example, when the line for Slinky Dog reached all the way through Toy Story Land and back into Animation Courtyard, as soon as it got right around Voyage of the Little Mermaid, Disney said, no more people can enter this line. And at that point, you had to wait for the line to open again. So standby, queue, standby pass is going to work like that. You're going to have a time to come back where you can get into a standby line. Hmm. And if you think that's confusing, there's five more things, <laughs> five more possibilities <laughs> we're going to go through. Okay. The next one, the next one's a boarding group, and this is Rise of the Resistance, right? We all mm -hmm. know how Rise of the Resistance boarding groups work. I'm told that Remy, when it opens, is going to be the same way. So virtual queue without time windows. And you'll have to get up at 7 a.m. and have a reservation for Epcot to get a Remy reservation as well. The next thing will be premier access. So similar to... Disneyland Paris's uh, thing. And my understanding here is that Disney's like sort of looking at calling this lightning lane or lightning mm. pass. Okay. So paid fast pass with a time window. The, so the way old fast pass worked with a time window, right? Okay. Then I'm told there's going to be this thing called lightning lane plus, which is the same idea, paid fast pass, but you get instant access at a cost. So it'll be more expensive than the Lightning Lane. And uh, you want to take a, So some of the prices I've heard for this, Jim, would you like okay. to take a guess? How much would you pay for instant access to Rise of the Resistance <sighs> per person right now, Jim? I'm going to lowball it. I'll say 30. Oh, Jim, never, ever lose that childhood na naivete. Uh, never, ever lose it. Okay. Fif think about $50 oh. per oh. person. So 200 bucks for a family of four. Okay. But wait, there's more. Okay. So I also understand this, we, we, and I think we've talked about this briefly, mm -hmm. um, the Genie product that's coming out. Yep. yep. So my understanding is that there's going to be a free version of Genie where it's essentially like a skin on my Disney experience. You'll be able to select your favorite rides. Let's say Buzz Lightyear and Magic Carpets of Aladdin and, you know, It's a Small World and so on. And then throughout the day, as those lines dip, Mm -hmm. A certain subset of the people who selected those rides as favorite will get an alert through my Disney experience that says, hey, this line is relatively low right now. Come on over and ride. So it won't be everyone who selects it. And I don't know how the selection mechanism is going to work. But the idea is that throughout the day, uh, as the lines get low in certain attractions, some people will be alerted to those low lines and sent over. And Disney's actually filed a patent on this, so the operation of it is fairly clear. And that's the base Genie product. Then there's Genie Plus. So there's, if we're keeping track here, there are seven new things that are going to be announced this month. And that's optimized touring plans, computer optimized touring plans for a fee. Don't know what that's going to cost. Not even sure how it's going to work yet, but that's the, the seventh component. Okay. Uh, something else to take into account here is 
mm-hmm. how quickly this all could change. Because when the order comes down, recently talking with Jim Shul about he worked on the rock and roller coaster project, and you know that that opened July of nineteen ninety nine. Ninety nine. I, I was there. I guess they were a month out from opening when the word came down. This is a fast pass attraction, and you need to reconfigure, you know, you, your setup, yeah. you know, to, to accommodate uh, fast pass, and they did it. So this laundry list of options is a, a little terrifying. But again, when there's money to be had, the mouse can move quite quickly. So the the person I was talking to about this, who shall remain nameless for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. my first question was, do you have the people to create the training material to Oof. educate guests on this? Because we all know that 20 years after it was introduced, mm-hmm. a large subset of guests never understood FastPass. And that was basically two options at that time. That was standby or fast pass queues. Now you've got seven options. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to explain the difference between a standby queue, a standby pass, a boarding group, and premier access? Just to name the first four. And honest to God, I honestly believe mm-hmm. that Disney's intentionally adding some level of complexity to this in the hopes that people throw money at it to solve the problem. Like, you know, if you're the average family who comes, you know, once every 10 years and you Mm. see these seven options and you've got to sort through them and, you know, potentially go through the app to figure this out and schedule it. At some point, are you just going to say, look, here's an extra $500. Tell me what I need to do. Mm. And I think that's what's going to happen. But again, do you really want that to be the story? Let me me ask the the question this way. Is is that person coming back a second time? Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I think this is what kind of makes me crazy about the management team at Disney these days. There's a lot of folks who view Disney as an, a great company to be at, to be hired by somebody else. And the notion that you're the one who puts this idea in place that creates a new revenue stream and gets a promotion and then yep. goes off and works at a Nike or a Google or whatever, but that it does then leave the the Disney resorts with people going home for vacation. It's like, yeah, we had a good time, but oh my God, how, you know, it's so much more expensive than the last time. Yeah. And you actually have an entire thing written up on this that we'll talk about on a later show. I do. I do. All right. So that's uh, so seven, uh, seven options coming up sometime mm-hmm. this month. I think it'll all be announced. Anyway, yeah. uh, keeping on the theme of prices, Jim, uh, mm-hmm. Mears Connect, which is uh, the replacement for Disney's Magical Express, announced its pricing mm-hmm. this week. So this is bus transfer service between Orlando International Airport and your Disney Resort. Round trip for adults is $32 per adult. And for kids, it's $27 each. And I, uh, that price is to Disney's Pop Century Resort, which is the one I always use when I price these sort of things out. So that's uh, $64 and $54, $108 round trip mm-hmm. between the airport and your adult. So that's interesting because that's probably, it's probably not what Mears was charging Disney, right? But it's probably close. Yeah. That sounds about right. So, 108 bucks. The uh, the interesting thing is that an Uber, if you catch it the right way, is about that price as well, and you don't have the stops um, to, at multiple resorts. So, Mears is saying here, um, if you're going from the airport to Pop Century, there's no guarantee that you won't stop off at Art of Animation first, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's so that's the big question. I was uh, I was joking with uh, one of our travel agents that it's just like 2004 all over again. Because in 2004, there was no Magical Express. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we did on the, for the unofficial guide in the transportation chapter was list out all the various transportation options, their costs, and their pros and cons. And I felt like as I was updating that chapter this year, I was like, when was the last time I really looked at, at town car services in Orlando? And it, I had to go back 15 years. Holy cow. Yeah. Oof. 108 bucks round trip. That's not terrible, no. uh, but it's right at the point where I would say, am I going to spend 108 bucks uh, and not get direct door-to-door service? That's my big question right there. So we'll see how that goes. If, uh, if any of our listeners are, uh, are, are uh, contemplating this, let me know what you think of that price point. And speaking of price points, Jim. <laughs> Here we go. Um. Introductory prices and itineraries are out for mm-hmm. Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. When Disney put this out, Jim, it was for the least expensive set of dates in 2022. And remember, this is a two-night stay in a cabin or suite. It includes your entertainment, uh, your food while you're in the hotel, plus a quick service meal at Docking Bay 7. It includes admission to Hollywood Studios for one day and includes valet parking and Magic Band. All right. So for two people, 
Uh, $4,809 for two nights, Jim. $2,400 a person, $1,200 per night. How does that make you feel? Disney deliberately picked these price points because they had the data in hand that showed what people will pay per night at the Bora Bora, the cabins out along the water, or likewise at at Copper Creek, where the two-person for two nights. Yeah, $1,200 a person, yeah. An incredibly immersive environment and with meals. And we're talking height of the season, like, you know. Uh, no, this, Christmas was lo- this is low season. This is as cheap as it gets, Jim. Okay. Well, I, I, I get that. But the Bora Bora and the Copper Creek, you know, thing, if you go with the Christmas day or you go with the week of like January. Was it like four, four grand a night? Yeah, yeah four, four, eight, four, two, you know, that sort of thing. But those are how many people? How many people fit in a bungalow? Well, no, that's it exactly. Six, that's, eight? Yeah. No, all true. All true. All right. So let's, sorry, real quick. Let's just do the pricing for three and four people. So for three people, uh, mm-hmm. so two adults, one kid, add another 500 bucks to that, $5,300. Yeah. For four people, three adults, so I guess one of them is a teen and one child, a cool six grand for two nights. So three, okay. so that's only $750 per mm-hmm. person per night only. So these are the cheapest rates. They're uh, mid-August through mid-September of 2022. Just for kicks, mm-hmm. I wanted to estimate what the highest rate might be. So what I did is I looked at the difference between the cheapest and most expensive rates for a standard room at the Grand Floridian. Mm-hmm. So right 2021 rack rates, the uh, the difference is 57%. So the, the most expensive dates are 57% more expensive than the lowest rates. So using that guideline, here's mm-hmm. what we could expect at the Galactic Star Cruiser. Two people, peak season, $7,500 for two nights. Three people, eighty three hundred, and four people, nine thousand four hundred and twenty dollars. And I'm guessing that's ballpark. And actually, if anything, Jim, that might be a little low. Uh, and I don't know if you saw the more recent thing to drop after the trailer was the you know the well you know you're you're getting on the Halcyon, yeah, and you really gonna wanna gonna wanna fit in. So you if you go to shop Disney, we can help you with your Star Wars themed outfit. So you Oh will you know there's fit- gonna be upsells all over this well, like every just, every chance. I really want to support this idea. And I'm intrigued by the you did see we, we finally have a count on you know we have a hundred cabins and suites combined. Jim did you see the itinerary for this though? Because this is where I start to have questions. So let's go through let's go through the itinerary. Mm-hmm. Day one, day two, day three, and then I'll we'll we'll talk about the concerns I have. Mm-hmm. All right, so day one, one p.m. arrive at terminal, launch pod to Star Cruiser, one fifteen to one thirty, ship orientation, one forty five to two fifteen p.m. Light refreshments, three to three thirty. Sabak lessons, that's a that's the card game, right, Jim? That's right. Yes, three thirty to four, muster four to four thirty, captain's reception four thirty to five, dinner five thirty to seven. At our rim regalia, so this is like a, I guess, a ca- uh, casting off party, mm-hmm. uh, 7.15 to 7.30. Um, then, Jim, because you know uh, everyone likes these uh, scheduled moments of spontaneity, it's unexpected story moment, 7.30 to 8 p.m. <laughs> then there's bridge training, 8 to 8.45, and then special atrium entertainment, 8.30 to 8.45. All right, that's day one. Day two, mm-hmm. breakfast, 7 to 8. Then you head off to Galaxy's Edge, 815 to 825, where you get to ride Rise of the Resistance, 845 to 930. You have another unplanned story moment, or sorry, a spontaneous story moment, specifically from uh, 930 to 950. We got 20 minutes for a story moment there, Jim. That's good. Uh, Then you ride Millennium Falcon. Then you eat lunch at Docking Bay 7. You go back to the Star Cruiser by 1250. You have lightsaber training from 1 to 130. Droid racing from 2.30 to 2.50. You build a model ship from 3 to 3.30. Another Sabak tournament. Then more cocktails. Then a taste around the galaxy dinner. Another story moment. And then a spectacular finale, 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. The next day you got breakfast and then you are head back. All right, Jim. Mm -hmm. Here's my concern. You pay how many thousands of dollars? So you got two people. You spend $4,800. Everything seems very regiment, very regimented, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of moments of play here. There's, in fact, there's one, two, three, right? Other than that, I mean, I get you have to do a ship orientation. I understand the light refreshment things, but two Sabak lessons mm-hmm. for an hour? Yeah. I mean, muster you've got to do. Captain's reception, that's just dinner and drinks. 
dinner, you have to feed people. Outer mm-hmm. room regalia, that's a, again a thing. You've got, uh, you know, in terms of actual LARPing, right? Live action role playing. You've mm-hmm. got 30 minutes on the first day. And then you've got 20 minutes and an hour and 15 minutes. So what do you have? <laughs> an hour 15 and yep. 20 is an hour 35 and 30. You got two hours and five minutes mm-hmm. of actual being immersed in this story stuff mm-hmm. for $4,800. How much is it to rent an entire Stormtrooper battalion? Uh, Would it be cheaper? I just got to say, for the amount of money involved, mm-hmm. that seems remarkably non-immersive. I, again, I, I, they could, all of these things could be overwhelming, right? I, the lightsaber training looks great. The, as far as I know, the droid racing competition will knock my socks off. But mm-hmm. all this stuff just sounds like a regular cruise with mm. Star Wars you know, overlays on it. I think we talked about the casting notices that were posted right. last year. For a lot thing. of improv, yeah. Yeah, and they they, you know, they talk, for example, about the the junior engineer who actually takes you inside the inner workings of the ship, and that becomes part of the you know, the resistance storyline. I mean, there are things here that Disney has not put on the schedule that will, in fact, be spontaneous. Uh, uh, Jim, have you seen the schedule? When is that spontaneity going to happen? I know. I oh know. wait, I, I apologize. There actually is fifteen minutes between seven and seven fifteen on day one. <laughs> I, I stand corrected, Jim. You're, okay. you're right. No, it just... It, oh, it, and it, there's 45 minutes between the ship orientation and... Okay. So they've got places where they can they can fit stuff in. There is a reason, Len, that the dates that they're talking about, people being able to book this thing, are next August and September. There's a lot of playtesting. So they've, they've, they've started hiring cast members, like regular actual cast members to staff the uh, hotel. So I take that back. They've started yeah. scheduling them for orientation sessions, mm-hmm. which is coming up later this month. Yeah, but they have told these people, it's like, look, we are hiring you, and your primary duty will be training for the Galactic Star Cruiser. But also be aware that during the downtime, we will potentially reassign you to other duties around the resort because they're not entirely sure the playtesting is going to work out and they want to be able to rework a scenario or a, yeah. a storyline or bring in on different the fly. Act. Yeah. Yeah. And so these folks are just, it's like your full-time schedule will be at this hotel when we finally turn the key on it. But when in 2022 that in fact happens, interesting question, Len. I mean, based on the last 20 minutes of us talking, there's no chance of me getting a media invite to preview this thing. So, <laughs> so I'm going to, so I'll pay the money for it. But again, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, for, for three immersive story moments, I mean, I've already been on the Falcon. I've already been on mm-hmm. Rise of the Resistance. I've already eaten lunch at Docking Bay 7. And all of those things are great. But yeah. man, that's all. I mean, the lightsaber training had better be the single greatest experience of my life. Like mm-hmm. for that for that kind of money, I just mm-hmm. ah, all right. We'll see. We'll see. I I am okay. super skeptical. All mm-hmm. right, all right, Jim. Let's move on to uh, some new Disney surveys here. All right. Mm-hmm. So the first one's from our good friend John Tierney, who most definitely did not work for a government agency in Eastern Europe. I mentioned that in passing. You know it, Jim. <laughs> right? I don't even have to say it. Here was the survey question. This was a Disney survey, but I want you to get a load of the 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 responses, the potential responses here, Jim. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which of the following things have you done in the past seven days? So listeners, answer this with me, right? So go, go, well, I'll go through these choices. You just blurt out yes or no. Which of the following things have you done in the past seven days? Bought something at a store, street vendor, or online? That's one choice. Second choice, had the mumps or measles? Third, reupholstered a sofa? Fourth, did laundry or washed dishes? Five, bought floppy disks. Six, got divorced. Seven, called, texted, or video conferenced with friends or family. Eight, donated an organ. And I think they mean like spleen here, not like a Wurlitzer. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the first time I've ever said Wurlitzer on the show? (laughs) It might be. I I will have to to, to check the chart. Hang on. Listen to let's we'll ask Philip. All right, mm-hmm. bought food at a supermarket, fast food restaurant, etc. Went somewhere in a car, truck, bus, subway, or train, and finally none of the above. So, Jim, why does Disney want to know if we got divorced or reupholstered a sofa? This is the weirdest, most random set of questions. I mean, 
Why did they leave? Got a paper cutter, shot a man to watch him die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that should be one of the answers. There we go. <laughs> this is absurd. Donated oh, an so organ? Funny. That yeah. should be one of the answers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I think it's, I think it's there to just uh, detect when people are clicking things randomly, and then you ignore that entire survey. Okay. So if you say that you bought floppy disks, Mm. you know, or that you donated an an organ or Mm reupholstered a sofa, they would look at your responses more skeptically. Okay. That's reasonably sensible explanation. But, you know, on the other hand, the number of people like donated an organ and, hey, I'm going to Disney World. It's like, like, because I can finally now fit (laughs) in the ride vehicle. (laughs) I can afford it. There we go. There we go. There. All right. All right, here's a survey from Jen, and it was about Memory Maker. And some of the responses here are interesting. So the question was, which of the following describe why you're unlikely to purchase Memory Maker? So there's a question previous to this that Mm -hmm. Jen answered and said that she was going to be unlikely to purchase Memory Maker. So this question is why. So Mm -hmm. some of the answers include, um, I may purchase individual pictures. I'm just browsing. There's an in-park mask requirement. Um, it's non-refundable. I'll just buy it on site. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. The photographs expire. Um, it has limited value to me. It's already included with my annual pass. I had a past ne- negative experience. It's too expensive. Um, there's a current requirement to wear face coverings in photos. Uh, my plans are uncertain because of travel restrictions. There are no character meet and greets or special experiences or other. So this is interesting in that Disney's trying to figure out how much they're losing in Memory Maker because of masks or the lack of character meet and greets those are the two questions that just leaped out at me yeah and they're asking this question in real time with last week to 10 days we've seen the requirement that okay we're back to wearing masks indoors at you know at attractions and the like yeah i think that's uh that's exactly what it is all right here uh here's a survey from ken and by the way like a dozen people sent in variations on this same question which is brand new uh, for disney i've never seen it before Mm-hmm. And it goes like this. So, so thank you to everyone who sent this one in. Um, it says, before booking your stay at a Walt Disney World Resort Hotel, in which of these places, if any, did you seriously consider staying for this trip to Central Florida? Uh, so the first choice is, I really didn't consider seriously staying anywhere other than a Disney hotel, or I was going to stay with friends and family. I was going to stay at a timeshare or vacation property I owned. I was going to rent a timeshare or vacation property. I was going to stay at a hotel or resort in the Orlando area that's not owned by Disney. So, for example, a Hilton or a Marriott. I was going to do a vacation home rental, such as Airbnb or other. And uh, if you pick something there other than uh, didn't seriously consider any non-Disney combinations, the next question is where it gets interesting. And the next question is this. What was your mindset when choosing accommodations for your upcoming trip? Please use the slider below to indicate where you fall on the zero to 10 scale. And a zero means I chose my accommodations just because it's a place to sleep. I only value practical considerations such as location, room size, configuration, and cleanliness. That's a zero. A 10 is accommodations are an extremely important part of the vacation experience. In addition to practical considerations, I want to be immersed in a unique environment that allows me to escape the everyday. So, Jim, you and I have talked about this as Disney's opened its recent hotels and how they're kind of sort of becoming cookie cutterish, especially on the inside. Yeah. You know, where you know you change a couple of lampshades, change some wallpaper, and all of a sudden the Grand Destino Tower becomes the Riviera, right? True. Mm-hmm. But nobody would ever mistake either of those hotels for the Animal Kingdom Lodge or the Polynesian or the Wilderness Lodge, right? Those are no, distinct. Not at all properties, mm-hmm. right? They physically on the outside, they have a shape that does not look like a normal hotel, mm-hmm. right? You step in the lobby, it doesn't look like a normal hotel lobby, etc. right? But the recent stuff that Disney's done, if you think about even, you know, Kadani on the outside or Riviera or Coronado, they look like generic hotels with some, with some exterior uh, branding on them. So I think this question asks, how important is theming to you? And Ken, to his credit, put an eight on here. So, you know, theming is more important than not. This is an interesting development if they're really eyeballing this. And I wonder how much of this is due to... So, if you look at availability mm-hmm. at the resorts right now, there's room. Like, you could get a you could get room this weekend at Riviera, mm. which is unusual. Because ignoring the theming, 
functionally, the rooms are fantastic. They're well lit. They're spacious. The bathrooms are great, right? It's super convenient to get to the studios or to Epcot. It's got mm-hmm. excellent dining options. It should be, you know, fairly popular. It's very expensive, mm-hmm. right? And in terms of theming, it's not really. Again, you could you could change you know, throw a coat of paint on it, and it could be Disney's Beach Club Resort, you know. So I think that's I think that's what they're looking at there. Like, have we have we have we tried to cookie cutter these hotels a little bit too much? The Skyway system, that hasn't, you know, I mean, wasn't the thinking that this was going to make this an essential hotel, that the fact that you had this system that could take you over to the studios or over, you know, Dabcon? It does, but let me give you an example. So a uh, the cheapest room right now at Riviera this weekend, I think is $600 a night, $700 mm-hmm. a night, something like that. And within walking distance, Jim, is Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort, where you can get rooms for a couple hundred dollars a night. So the question is, is... Is what you get at the Riviera worth, you know, four or five hundred dollars more per night? Mm, and I think a lot of families are just going to say no. Okay. All right. We mentioned uh, Magical Express going away before, and uh, Mirrors Connect being the backup to that. I, I'm not sure what, uh, whether Disney's having second thoughts on this, Jim. But here's a question that came out in the survey this week. Prior to taking the survey, were you aware that Magical Express was no longer offered as a complimentary service to Walt Disney World Resort guests? Yes or no? And if you answered yes. The next question is, please give us details surrounding your upcoming vacation. How are you getting to Central Florida? Once you get to Central Florida, how are you getting to your Disney World hotel? <laughs> Woof. They're, they're trying to see where the, where the business is going, yeah. right? Now yeah. that they're not doing it. So, the, the, I mean, the options that are there are uh, taxi or ride share, rent a car, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's super interesting there. The other thing that's interesting is for the same survey. So, this is a whole set of questions we've never seen before. This one is, Please tell us why you're choosing to visit the Walt Disney World Resort in 2022 during the specific time of year you're going. So if you're going in spring, summer, whatever, it actually calls it the month and mm-hmm. says, why are you going during this month? And the options are, and there's a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. I want to experience the 50th anniversary. There are appealing Central Florida prices. I'm anticipating being able to attend a specially ticketed or limited time or seasonal Walt Disney World event. I think it's going to be less crowded. Uh, And then there are personal factors. It's when my family's available. It's better for my work schedule. It's better for my kid's school schedule. We're going to be celebrating a special occasion. And it's traditional for us to be visiting Walt Disney World this time of year. There's also outside influences. It was recommended to me by a travel agent, by an online source, or by family and friends. Or travel costs will be lower or the weather is better. So this is super interesting too because it's asking why did you come during this month. And you notice they called out specially ticketed limited time seasonal events. They did. They did. June. Okay. So that would be. Yeah. This particular the, one is for June. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that would be the, the end of flower garden. There we go. Yeah. So. So let's, let's imagine that nobody checked the box mm-hmm. that said, I'm anticipating being able to attend a specialty ticketed, sorry, specially ticketed limited time seasonal event. They would go to the schedule and say, well, what do we have in June? Mm-hmm. And if the only thing we have in June is the end of Flower and Garden, you think Disney would say, well, we need more stuff there? Mm, so know, if, mean, it's, I, if it's not checked, mm-hmm. what does Disney get by, by knowing that it wasn't checked? That's the key to these surveys is like, what is the question they're <laughs> trying the, to get answered? What's with the, this, exactly. You know, what piece of information are they trying to mine? I would love to see what happens if – Nobody checks the 50th anniversary box oh. or the seasonal event box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because then it'd be like, well, Disney's, Disney's like, well, these are clearly not drawing people in. Mm-hmm. Ah, super interesting. That it is. All right. Let me know if you hear anything on that. All right. Finally, we have uh, time for one quick listener question, Jim. This one's from Sarah. Mm-hmm. He says, we just checked out from a brief stay at the Riviera and the inclusion of Costco in our survey questions caught my eye. Why do you think Costco is included? and not other members-only big-box companies like Sam's or BJ's. The inclusion of AAA makes sense, but Costco seems like an outlier, giving all the other Disney-based choices. Does Costco have a unique relationship with Disney? As a happy Costco member, I'd love there to be more Disney promotions available through Costco in case this is a harbinger of things to come. So the survey question that Sarah references asked how you booked your trip, and it gave a list of things like American Express Travel, AAA, and one of them was Costco. Um, So Sarah, I think the... uh, the answer is that Disney's trying to figure out how much people who book through Costco spend on their trip. 
So if I'm not mistaken, Sarah, at the end of your trip, sorry, at the end of your survey, there was a question that said, can we link the information you gave us in this survey to other things we know about you? And the other things we know about you, Sarah, is how much you spent. So Costco is a huge, huge provider of customers for Disney travel. Lots of people book travel to Disney through Costco. And I think what, what Disney is trying to figure out here is how much each of those customers are worth. And I've seen other companies do this. I, I know, for example, like American Express, when I worked there, they were trying to segment out their customer base and destinations to try to figure out people who booked, for example, trips to Wyoming to watch a rodeo. How much were they spending on their trip versus somebody who was going to Paris? And how much were they spending on their trip? And I think Disney's trying to do the same thing here. You know, for each of these for each of these travel agencies, including mm-hmm. Costco and AAA, how much does the average person spend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you you figure from there, like how much do you emphasize or de-emphasize those relationships? And likewise, yeah. how you refine the offerings. Exactly. Yeah. Let me do it. Do we need to offer more? Do we need to offer less? Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think that's it, sir. Great question. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, folks, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break. When we come back, it's Halloween, at least as far as Disney's concerned. So Jim, be- <laughs> it's spoopy season. So Jim go. begins the history of Disney's Haunted Mansion. I can't believe we've never done this in depth, Jim, but uh, we're going to start this right after we get back from the break. We'll be right back. All right, folks, like I said before, it is now Halloween season as far as Disney's concerned. The decorations are up. It feels like fall harvest to me, doesn't it to you, Jim? It's 85 degrees here. I have seen the leaves change, you know, mostly to brown, but, you know. From green to dead. There we go. It's 118 here in Palm Springs, Jim. Oh, okay. All right, but Halloween decorations are out, uh, and it is spooky season, and there is no spookier ride than Disney's Haunted Mansion. And you are going to tell us how it all began. Also, there's an anniversary coming up, right? Yeah. Well, that, and in fact, the, the day this show goes live, August 9th, is the 52nd anniversary of the opening of the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland Park. The day that intrigues me more is one week later. Uh, that was Saturday, August 16th, 1969. And on that day, 82,516 people poured into Disneyland Park. Wow. So that's... 1969, 82,000. Wow, the park wasn't. That's a lot of people for that that kind of park. Well, uh, to put this in in perspective, folks, on a typical summer day back in the 60s, on a weekday, 30,000 people would enter Disneyland. On a Saturday or Sunday, 50,000 people. So the fact that, you know, you had this extra 30,000 people. That's a weekday. It's a weekday on top of the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And that attendance record held at the park for another 18 years. In fact, the only time that Disneyland attendance for a single 24-hour period surpassed that was in January of 87 when Star Tours first opened. Though on that Saturday, the park was only open from 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. Okay, so 15 hours. Whereas for the the opening of Star Tours, Disneyland had a 60-hour-long party. So the park was actually... You know, and and so for us, you know, people could literally come into the park 24 around the clock. So, you know, the fact that way more people per hour uh, Mm -hmm. when Haunted Mansion opened. Okay. At that time, the mansion, thanks to its Omnimover system, could handle 2,616 people per hour. That's not bad. That's that's a good rate. So if you multiply that by the 17 hours the park was open for the day, that Mm -hmm. meant 44,472 people could have ridden the mansion again on August 16th, 1969. Okay. Wait, 44,000 out of 82,000? There we go. So (sighs) I'm sensing a lot of make goods here, Jim. (laughs) Well, see, that's the thing. 53% of the people in the park could have gotten on the mansion that day. Once you got in the line, which actually started out at the hub, it was a three-hour slog to get get to the mansion and finally get on it. Okay, but three hours for a brand new ride. I waited four hours when uh, Indian Jones and Temple of Doom opened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, traveling much along the same path as, as the folks waiting for your mansion. But this was only possible, this level of people getting on the thing. As a result of the great steps forward that the Disney company made because of the 64, 65 New York World's Fair, 
There's folks in Imagineering who can draw a straight line from the Ford Magic Skyway on that ride. They get 4,000 people an hour. Wow. No, no Disney ride has ever hit 4,000 an hour, right? That was a continuous line of Ford cars where you could yeah. put two people up front, three people in the back seat, and oh, you know, yeah, yeah, okay. you know, push them through capacity. that way. And yeah. it's a straight line from there to the Omnimover being brought into the park and making its debut with the Adventures Through Inner Space, which debuts in August of 67 at the park. They were able to get as high as 3,275 people per hour. That's Pirates of the Caribbean running at full tilt on a great day. Yeah, but also remember, one of the reasons you're able to do that is that Adventures Through Inner Space had a shorter ride track, so oh, okay, you okay. could put that much many more people in it because you were getting the Omnimovers back to the load-unload station that much faster. One of the reasons that so many people love the mansion is because of the Omnimover system. So many people have been able to experience the mansion, you know, that it has this amazing hourly throughput. Oh, yeah. At that point, it was called the Haunted House. It was called the Ghost House. It was called the Spook House. If Walt had gone with his original plan, I wonder if the mansion would have been this popular. Because, frankly, so many fewer people could have experienced the thing. Oh, as a walkthrough? Not even a walkthrough. It was a walk by. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't have been the same. August of 1948. Walt writes a memo for a, a project he's long been thinking of. It's the Mickey Mouse Park. This is directly across from the Disney Studios in Burbank. On the other side of a Riverside Drive mm-hmm. was this chunk of roughly eight acres that's bounded on one side uh, to the north by Riverside Drive and then to the south by the Los Angeles Flood Control Channel. The original Rivers of America, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There you go. <laughs> All right, good. All right. If we're, we're going with what talk, Walt's talking about in, in 1940, it really is sort of a melding of uh, Main Street USA and Frontierland with, with little flecks of Fantasyland tossed in there. So you, you enter Mickey Mouse Park and you find yourself on the town green in the main village, which most of the time Walt referred to as Newtown. And at one end of this green space is a, a turn-of-the-century train station. At the other end is the Red Brick Town Hall. This is how Walt describes it. In the park will be benches, a bandstand, drinking fountains, trees, and shrubs. Be a place for people to sit and rest. Mothers and grandmothers can watch over small kids at play. I want it to be very relaxing, cool, and inviting. There's a a lot of us who's like, great, I'm I'm sitting. Is there anything else here to do? Well, Well, yes. If you're facing Town Hall, to your right, you'll see... Sticking up over the trees, you see the tops of some very colorful tents. And this is where a traveling carnival has recently set up shop. And if you head over there, you're going to find a carousel, not to mention a midway, which leads to a circus tent. Yeah, Jim, if I, if I think of uh, very relaxing, cool, and inviting, the first mm-hmm. image that comes to mind for me is traveling carnies. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally with hold, Walt on hold, this one. Hold that thought, Len. We're, we're, oh, sorry, we're going to get back to the carnies. There's more. There's okay, more. Okay, on the other hand, if you look to your left, you're going to see the turn-of-the-century-style buildings that make up Newtown give way to some older-looking structure, a.k.a. Old Town. Oh, so I've never heard of this, Old Town. Yeah, this is the part of Mickey Mouse Park that gradually gives way to more of a frontier feel as you walk uphill. And at the outskirts of of Old Town, you'll eventually find Granny's Farm. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Disney film So Dear to My Heart. Yeah. You're going to go up to the, the farm from so dear to my heart. Between Old Town and Granny's Farm, high up on a hill overlooking Old Town's overgrown graveyard is a spooky old abandoned house. And those visitors to Mickey Mouse Park who are brave enough, there's a path that leads through the graveyard that takes you up to the porch that wraps around the spooky old house. I've never heard of any of this. So the spooky old house and Granny's yep. farm yep. was the the border between Old Town and Newtown? Well, no, the, the, the spooky old house was actually outside of Old Town, but just down the road from Granny's farm. So oh. you know, the notion is as you left Old Town and headed out into the countryside, just at the edge of town, with, again, high up on the hill was the spooky old house. Oh, uh, okay. The, the, the classic setting for these kinds of things. Wow, that's go. great. That's a great idea, actually. Okay. So you get up, out, so you're on the porch, and you begin to walk around and look in individual windows on the porch. And here, what you see 
are show scenes that take their inspiration from the December 1937 Mickey Mouse short, Lonesome Ghosts. Okay, all right. Now, again, you got to remember, early, early iteration of Disneyland Park. Lots of elements here that don't entirely fit together. I mean, for example, if you walk beyond Granny's Farm, you know, you see a covered bridge. It's like, oh, great, a covered bridge. But if you walk to the other side of the covered bridge, it's like there's a full-size version of the Seven Dwarfs Cottage. And then right next to that is Geppetto's Toy Shop. So it's like, well, okay, <laughs> sure. Granny, Granny has some strange neighbors, but okay. Yeah, she does. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's familiar if you know the Disney parks. I mean, you know, not a surprise that Newtown at all time are built at the edge of a sizable lagoon and that there's an island in the middle of the lagoon. But in this case, it's, you know, not Tom Sawyer's. It's, it's a sanctuary for wild birds. And, you know, again, oh, I get to ride in a Mississippi steamboat. Cool. But as okay. I'm going around the wide wild bird sanctuary, well, at one end is a, a lighthouse straight out of New England. And at the other end is Skull Rock. Oh, from Peter Pan. Yeah, I mean, Walt is trying out different things. Walt, is, it's, a, you know, it's a lot to put in eight acres. It is. It is. In fact, Walt eventually begins to realize as he, he's working on this that, geez, I'm going to need back of house. I mean, we're going to have, like, for example, you'll be able to hire a Surrey to take you from Newtown up into Granny's farm. But you're going to need some place to stable the horses. Likewise, if we're going to have a working steam train to come in and out of that train station, we're going to need a roundhouse backstage. If we have people who are dressed in authentic turn-of-the-century garb, or for that matter, look like they're out of the Old West, got to have a costuming department. And suddenly, you have to fit this all into eight, eight acres, and yeah. it doesn't work. But Walt finds out that the city of Burbank, owns a 10-acre parcel to the left of the chunk of land that Walt's into and another 10-acre parcel to the right. And Walt's like, wow, if I get the city to lease me those two pieces of property, I go from having eight acres to 28 acres. Yeah, that's that's different. Yeah. Yeah. And so Walt persuaded Harper Goff, who was a great set designer for Warner Brothers, to come over to Disney to start working with him on right. this Mickey Mouse park. And it's Harper who actually draw, drew the drawing that we, we know today of this version of the spook house up on the hill. And so he has Harper do this drawing in 51. Walt reaches out to the Burbank city manager in December of 51 and briefs him on, on what he wants to try to do here. And the city manager is encouraging, but he, he just warns him, look, you're going to need approval basically the full council if you're going to get access to those two i i know where you're going with this yeah i mean and in, in in 1951 no one understands what a disney theme park is well then that's it exactly you know the, the walt tries you know in fact you know that he begins a, a pr campaign in fact march of 52 the burbank daily review even ran a feature piece about the project it's it, it headline was walt disney make-believe land project planned here but you've nailed it. People, all they knew when they hear carnival or circus, it's just, okay, that, that's noise, that's trash, that's carnies. And Walt makes the formal pitch for uh, his Mickey Mouse Park to the Burbank City Council in September of 1952. And he lays out all of the art and included with the art, again, his spook house up on the hill. And a, a senior member of the city council stands up in this meeting, it says, we don't want a carny atmosphere here in Burbank. We don't want people falling in the lagoon or merry-go-round squawking all day long. And with that, Walt's chance of leasing those two 10-acre pieces of land on, the, on either side of that eight-acre chunk goes away. And now uh, Mickey Mouse Park, at least in Burbank, is no longer feasible. And Harper, who evidently was actually at this meeting with Walt, was was kind of you know downtrodden. It's like, nah, don't worry about it. We were already outgrowing the spot here. We'll just go someplace else. We'll find more land. Wow, think bigger. That's that that's uh, responding to adversity right there. You know what? I don't need your twenty acres. Yeah. <laughs> buy more. Yeah, and so Buzz Price, who began the land search out away from Burbank at this point, you know, and eventually finds the parcel, you know, along the soon to be five, you know, that Orange Grove and a Walnut Grove in, in Anaheim, but. Meanwhile, Walt is continuing to tinker with his plan, and he takes his new town and his old town 
And these now become Main Street USA and Frontierland. But the earliest iteration of the plan for Disneyland, the one that Herbie Ryman drew up in 53, that Roy Disney then carried to, you know, hand carried to New York to show the executives at CBS and NBC and eventually ABC looking for funding for this thing. You can see that the plan has still carried over from Mickey Mouse Park because if you're walking up Main Street USA mm-hmm. on your left between Main Street and Frontierland is the haunted house. Really? It was going to go there. It was going to go there initially. And in fact, and the thinking was that because in this version of the plan, because remember, we, we, we actually just did a Bandcamp exclusive show about the Jungle Cruise and how the Jungle Cruise was actually going to be built between Tomorrowland and Main Street USA. That This was when that was going to be the Rivers of Romance. Huh. So Jungle Cruise was going to be on that side. So what was actually going to happen was behind Main Street USA and in that chunk of land where the Jungle Cruise eventually did get built was going to be the show building for the Spook House, but also the Roundhouse for the Disneyland Railroad. Which again, it made sense. You know, you got the train station, you know, right at the top of the entrance as you come in. So the fact that you know you'd have the facility to maintain the trains right there made sense. As we go from fifty three to fifty four to fifty five, mm-hmm. these chess pieces start to move around the board, and right. it, as is the case with the Spook House, which we'll get into how the Spook House moved over to Frontierland, which in turn acquired a whole new area, uh, you know, New Orleans Square. On the next show. That's fantastic, Jim. I'm really glad we started this series. And I've learned something on it, too. I kind of love that, that the fact that you walk up to the porch and then just w- each individual window you would have looked in, there would it have been. Something. Yeah. What happens now? I've never done this, but you know how like in Disneyland, you can uh, walk up to the Haunted Mansion and pass through, pass by the windows directly. And you can't do it in, in, in Walt Disney World. But in mm-hmm. Disneyland, what happens if you look through the windows or are they just uh, covered so you can't look in? I remember interviewing Donny Osmond. If you stand in... This in is the, the greatest st- story I've ever heard. Go ahead. Okay. If you stand <laughs> in the street out front of the, the, the Haunted Mansion and look up at the second floor, there's a candle that moves from window to window. Right. Yes. And there's a... Uh, in Boundless Realms, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the book, which I think we've talked about in the show previously, mm-hmm. um, yep. they, he, um, she explains how, how that effect works. Yep. But, but that's the thing, Donnie, you know, was fascinated with him and they took him up to the second floor and he said, you know, I was so disappointed when I, I saw what it actually was. And again, anyone who binds Boundless Realms will understand it. It's, it, it's a beautiful but deceptively simple trick. Yeah, it's uh, remarkably simple, yeah. It's a set of relays, right? Yeah. Okay, but one final story before we close out here, because again, that that when I interviewed Donnie, he was going into uh, it was going to be appearing appearing on Broadway, playing Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. I totally see that. That's brilliant casting. All right, go all ahead. right. So he's in Australia performing, but he's he's in his hotel room rehearsing, getting ready to go into the show in New York. And if you remember the lead up. To uh, the song Gaston, you know, yeah. th- th- there's lines of it. Who does she think she is? You know, the we're gonna. And so Donnie is in his room yelling as Gaston, you know, practicing the lead up to the, the song Gaston, and and he gets a call from the front desk. He says, "Is everything okay?" And <laughs> Mr. Osmond, is, is Mrs. Osmond okay? <laughs> you know, like. You know, oh, because he was. Just, people were walking by and saying, <laughs> "Yes, sounds like he's beating a woman in there." And it's like, no, he, he's he's practicing to be Gaston. So oh, that is fantastic. If I ever meet yeah. Donny Osmond, that's literally the first question I'm going to ask know. him. So that is amazing. you know he's doing a show by himself in Vegas now. It's not with Marie anymore. Really? Oh. Yeah, I was just there, and uh, it was it was Donny Osmond at is it Harris? Mm. Anyway, Donny Osmond. Okay, uh, I was trying to figure out why. Now, I think Marie's doing television now. I think they had been had a long-standing residency there, yeah. and just ended as a team. So I I don't know. So he's the flamingo, by the way. All mm-hmm. right, fair enough. All right, I'll, uh, I'm buying tickets to him next time I go. Okay. All right. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the Flying Saucers of Disneyland. On next week's show, we're going to continue the history of Disney's haunted mansion. 
You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be handing out water during the Run Like a Headless Chicken 5K, part of the Mike the Headless Chicken Festival in Fruta, Colorado, at 8 a.m. on Saturday, August 28th at the Fruta Civic Center on East Aspen Avenue in beautiful downtown Fruta, Colorado. Thanks to our friend Tim for noticing this on Aaron's schedule. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.